Thank you, Mr. Gene, for calling us to order in true Hebrew fashion. Let us open in prayer and use the words of Psalm 8. Let us pray. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? 
For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. Amen. I thought of that psalm. I don't know if any of you follow the new, uh, what is it, James Webb uh, uh, satellite uh, camera. Thank you. Um, the pictures, the few that we have already, are, of course, just stunning of that. And uh, that, that's a good picture to meditate on when you're doing that particular psalm. Well, I want to start out today um, with a quick review because we did a lot of things last week. There's some folks here that weren't here last week. And I think uh, be very good to review some of these things. So I'm going to go very quickly here through what we've been doing so far. But we're going to stop at a few places. And I uh, hope this doesn't make you seasick here. <laughs> what we're doing We talked a little bit about how uh, Christians have used the Psalms in past times. And one of the traditions we charted was the Calvinist tradition. Presbyterians, uh, Reformed folks, and we made the distinction that Reformed means from the Calvinist strain as opposed to the Lutheran strain. So when you talk about the Lutheran Reformation and then you talked about the reformed branch of the Christian church. That's two different groups of people that we're talking about there. We talked about how they developed what was called metrical psalmody, where they would take a psalm because they thought only God's own words were worthy to sing to God in a worship setting. So how can we get those psalms in a format where the average person can sing? Well, you take the psalm and you transliterate it into a poem structure such that you can have multiple verses that all have the same number of syllables in each phrase. And that's the meter, getting the meter that's the same every verse. And simple tunes such that you have one note per each syllable, not each word, but each syllable of the text. Simple tunes that can be repeated to all the stanzas of these uh, paraphrased psalms. So we talked about that. We talked about uh, three very common uh, meters that poets would use. Um, Long LM stands for long meter, uh, where there are four lines and there's four syllables in each line. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice, and so forth and so forth. The most common meter got the very clever name of common meter. And so that's 8686. And hymns like Amazing Grace fall into that category. And then there's short meter, which, as you see, is kind of like common meter. But the second line, uh, no, the first line 
uh, has one fewer or two fewer syllables. Now there's a lot of meters. And if you look in the metrical index of a hymnal, you can see all those different meters. But what you'll notice is that most of them are either long meter, common meter, short meter. They're still the most commonly used. This is one tradition that has been passed down to us of ways uh, to take a psalm and make it singable by a congregation of basically non-musical people. Then we talked about Hebrew poetry. And we made a few very uh, important distinctions. Hebrew poetry does not rhyme sounds. It rhymes ideas. What's more, there's almost no meter that you can derive from a psalm. And of course, as you look through the psalms, and if you try to count the number of syllables, even if you're in the Hebrew, you find that there's no consistency from section to section of the psalm. So uh, that doesn't matter with Hebrew poetry. This is one of God's rich blessings to the church because any language can take the psalm and translate it into their own language. Don't worry about rhyming. Don't worry about meter necessarily. But you get the same poetic idea that the Hebrews had because you are rhyming ideas. Now, what does that mean? Well, we call it parallelism, you'll recall. And we used Psalm 103 as a perfect example. Bless the Lord, O my soul. That's the first half of the first verse. The second half of the first verse says, and all that is within me. Well, that's pretty much the same as saying my soul. Bless his holy name is very much the same as saying bless the Lord. So you see that the second line really doesn't give you any more information than you had from the first line. This is very common in Hebrew poetry uh, and it's called therefore synonymous parallelism because of the word synonym, which means the same thing. There's another kind called antithetic, one that you run into a lot in the Proverbs where you say something and then you say the opposite. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. So this dichotomy, uh, this contrast uh, is what we call antithetic poetry. Then there's a kind that's called synthetic and we looked at the first chapter of the Bible, a place we wouldn't expect to see a song, but here it is. First of all, you have synonymous parallelism and God created man in his own image. And then you say the same thing, but you reverse it. In the image of God created he him. But this time the writer is adding yet another parallelism to it. Male and female created he them. Well, now you're getting more information. What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, it's connected in some way to male and femaleness, which is an interesting thing to explore. And instead of created he him, he now says created he them. So you see, you're narrowing down the scope and giving some more information. This is also a very common thing. You pick up your Bible and read any psalm you want to, and you're going to find in each verse these parallelisms going on. They're not always easy to see. Uh, because what I'm giving you here is the most basic elementary 
uh, version of it. Uh, the folks who wrote the Psalms were good poets, and they sometimes get a lot more complex so that you can't just break it down into these four categories. The fourth is uh, what is called emblematic, where you use a simile or a metaphor. As a deer longs for the water brooks, so my soul thirsts after the Ogon. Now, this is the genius of all Hebrew poetry. And we talked about how we find this not only in the book of Psalms, but we found out that uh, we talked about the first week how prophets did their prophesying by going into an ecstatic state and they often carried with, well, they also had with them a whole school of prophets, a whole group of prophets that would go into an area and there were always musicians with them. So prophecy was done in, in poetry and poetry always includes musical instruments. Uh, music always yeah, I said that right. Poetry always includes musical instruments in the ancient Hebrew way of thinking. And we talked all about that, but this is just a quick review. Then we spent a good bit of time taking a beginning look at Psalm 73. We found out that the book of Psalms is divided into five different sections. It's not altogether clear why, but you can easily see at certain points as you're going through the book of Psalms, it says book two, then later on book three, book four. And you also find that it will say a Psalm of David or a Psalm of Jeduthun or a Psalm of Asaph. And we'll talk later on more about all of that, that kind of nomenclature. Then we read through the whole Psalm together and we looked at the psalm and found out the uh, parallel structures, the poetic structures inherent in Psalm 73. We looked at some of what the church fathers had to say about all that. So I'd like for us to start here today at verse 10. The psalmist has been complaining. He's looking around and as you often read in the Bible, and as you often hear yourself saying and other people saying, how come the rich are doing so well and the poor struggle so much? The age-old issue going on. And this psalmist is really concerned about that. And you'll recall what he said in the first verse. My feet had almost slipped. So he is aware that he caught himself from getting into some pretty serious trouble. That's how he starts and then explains in quite a few verses, he, he's just griping about how the, the evil seemed to do so well and the righteous, mainly him in this case, how he has to struggle so much, but of course not just him. So in verse 10 then it starts out with the word therefore. And as you probably have heard the little joke, whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you have to ask what it's there for. Well, in verse 10, therefore refers to all that I just described to you. Uh, from a worldly perspective, you look at all that's going on in the world and you wonder, where is God? Is God's promises worth two cents? It doesn't look like it to me sometimes. 
But this is how it is in the world. And therefore, that evilness can attract other people. And that's what he's saying in verse 10. Therefore, fall the people unto them. Well, that's awkward language for saying everybody runs after these rich people, these good-looking rich people with uh, all the fame and popularity. And there out suck they no small advantage. I, I love the, the antiquated language here, but it, this idea of they suck no advantage out of that. Do, do you kind of get the sense of, uh, here, here's a rich person. This person, I, I want to improve my life like he does. I'm going to get close to him and I'm going to suck all the things out of him that I can. I'm going to work it out so that uh, I can feed off him in some way or another. Now, I'd like us to read this section uh, using what we know about parallelism. Often in church, well, always in church, uh, uh, Father Paul reads a verse, and then we read a verse, and then it's by verse. But the parallelism, as we've seen, is within each verse. And that's precisely why in the Psalter, in the Book of Common Prayer, you have these asterisks, these stars. So let's say this now, involving the parallelism, and what you'll note, if you answer quickly after I do, as if we're in conversation, you find that it actually becomes a conversation, and I think there's a kind of an electricity that comes out of that, uh, a liveliness as we dialogue together about this song. Okay. Therefore, fall the people unto them. Tush, they say, how should God perceive it? Lo, these are the ungodly. And I said, then have I cleansed my heart in vain? All the day long I have been punished. Yea, and I had almost said, even as they. All right, well, let's look at a few things here. Uh, chastened is a word I think we all know, but if, uh, the, the Hebrew word implies a number of things corrected, refuted, convinced. So all the day long I've been punished and refuted by God, corrected by God. He's trying to get convinced by God, but that's where he's having a hard time. So it's not quite, you you can take that different directions depending on the Hebrew various meanings for the word chastened. Then this verse 15 is a perplexing verse when you stop to think about it. Yea, And I had almost said, even as they. But lo, then I should have condemned the generation of thy children. What does that mean? I'm sorry, louder. But lo, then I should have condemned. Right. He's 
Because I, how was he doing the condemning? Uh huh. He's hearing that from them. And he's okay. Right? Okay. That's the way I think. Yeah, well, it's very obscure. And you read a bunch of translations, and none of them say the same thing. So it's, it's very complex and confusing Hebrew at this point. So that's as good as anything. What's another way you might read it? Is, is he saying that he's like in a position of teaching, and therefore, if he had said, even as these people who are saying, Tush, God won't see what I'm doing bad, then he's liable to lead astray the generation of God's Oh, okay. Did y'all catch that twist on it? It's the idea that when we sin, we really do two sins. We offend God, and we may well be tempting our own family members or others near us uh, into sin as well. So the more I think about that insight, the more I'm aware that that's true for most sins, unless they're very private ones. Uh, but even then you can argue you, as you sin and destroy your own self, that has negative effects on those around you. So there's always two, there, there's very few instances where there's one sin. They come in pairs. What we do with God and what that does and as we sin against each other can you see another way to translate it yeah going back potentially to um, verse 11 that may be maybe a more simplistic reading but that's what we have a direct quotation from the they um, uh-huh so if, he, if he's if this if this almost suggests that um, well god doesn't know things then that's bad, obviously. Yeah. Uh-huh. Not sure how far that goes. Yeah, yeah. Well, as I said, um, people who translate these take their best crack at it. But again, you look at all, all the different translations, and, and they, they're not uh, always on the same page about verses like this. And, and it's poetry. So that, you know, it's always a little harder to interpret a poem. It opens itself to multiple meanings, and that's, that's part of the nature of it. Okay, then I thought to understand this. He's trying to figure this out. But it was too hard for me until... Here's a case where the, these verses don't always help us because that's part of the same sentence. But it was too hard for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood the end of these men. Well, why did the sanctuary provide such help for him? The psalm tells us if we have it open. What is it? I mean, th this, this writer, uh, Asaf, it, it, we were told, is, is possibly the writer. Uh, he's been, he's been going on for, for quite a few verses. And now, all of a sudden, he goes to the sanctuary of God. A quiet place, a reverent place. Okay. Get away from the noise of the world. And what happens when we worship? What, what 
situation are we placing ourselves in? I'm sorry? In particular, what I'm thinking is exactly the same thing, but I'm thinking of the Holy Spirit. We are placing ourselves together with other Christians where I think the Holy Spirit does a kind of work that's different from what the Holy Spirit can do with us individually. That's why we are commanded to meet together. Things can become more clear in a worship service than they might at other times. But you go. That's right. So he could be there all by himself, couldn't he? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Could be. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood the end of these men. And then he tells us what he means. Namely, how thou dost set them in slippery places. And then he describes what he means by that. And casteth them down and destroyeth them. There's an example of synthetic parallelism. Uh, You set them in slippery places. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, you cast them down and you destroy them. That's what I mean by that. And what's more, oh, how suddenly do they consume, perish, and come to a fearful end. Remember that word suck? that we saw earlier there, they want to consume. They want to consume. Oh, how suddenly do they consume selfishness, gimme, 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 and then perish and come to a fearful end. Yea, even like as a dream, when one awaketh, so shalt thou make their image to vanish out of the city. Thus my heart was grieved And it went even through my reins. Now, what does that supposed to mean? (laughs) Well, I looked up uh, two contemporary versions, uh, the New International Version and the English Standard Version, and they translate, instead of went even through my reins, it says, my spirit was embittered. The other says, when I was pricked in heart. So I'm not sure where the word reigns fits in with all of that, but once again, you know, it's poetry. You can go a lot of ways with it. So foolish was I. See, he's in the sanctuary now. He's starting to see things more clearly. So foolish was I and ignorant, even as it were a beast before thee. And now fresh insights hit him. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, for all of those last 22 verses, I am always by thee. And you could stop right there. But he goes on. For thou hast holden me, held me by my right hand. That marvelous repetition of an Isaiah, of an Isaiah quote to uh, God holds us by the right hand. You are mine, he says. Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and after that receive me with glory. Now, he's really speaking wisdom from this point on. His feet had almost slipped, but they hadn't, and he's getting the insights now. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire in comparison of thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that forsake thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that are unfaithful unto thee. Notice that's past tense. The judgment has already happened for those. Jesus says, those who believe not are condemned already in John chapter 3, right before that, or after that famous passage, John 3, 16. For lo, they that forsake thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that are unfaithful to thee. But it is good for me to hold me fast by God, to put my trust in the Lord God, and to speak of all thy works in the gates of the daughter of Zion. Now, there's an interesting poetic thing that comes up here. This last phrase, and to speak of all thy works in the gates of the daughter of Zion. It draws us back to the first verse. How does the psalmist start? Does he start by griping? No, he, he's, he's experienced all of this before he starts to write. And so he starts with a very positive word. Truly, God is loving to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. As you read verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, you wouldn't think that's what the psalmist is saying. But he didn't slip. He caught himself, or God caught him. And he ends the psalm with exactly what he says at the end of the psalm. And I have almost said as they, but lo, then I would have condemned, oh, I'm sorry, truly God is loving to Israel, even unto such as are of a clean heart. And so when he starts the psalm, he's doing what he says at the end of the psalm. You see that? He's going to speak of all thy works in the gates of the daughter of Zion. And so he's aware by doing that, he is not condemning the generation of the children. He's not committing two sins because he caught himself in time. Any other thoughts about Psalm 73? Let's go back to the page. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see, we're talking about rains in 21, which was hard for us to see. We think of horse rains. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. It's well twenty-eight says it's good for me to hold me fast. And there's another spot somewhere that's talking about holding on to God. I can't figure that out right this second. You're thinking like maybe holding on to reins yeah. on the horse? Yeah, I, hmm. I never thought of that. Yeah, she got it. That's definitely what it is. Uh, it's holding me by my right hand. So up above we're saying reins. What the heck is this? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I never thought of that. That's a great insight. Well, who knows what, it, what the author really meant. But yeah. yeah. And, and some of these things can be for what mood you're in. Something oh, can yeah. say something to one person 
Whereas another person in a different mood, they go, well, that's not how I see it. And that's okay, I think. That's pretty creative writing. Mm -hmm. Different people can be served by the same words in a different way in their heart. That's excellent. Thank you. Rich insights. Anything else? Yeah. Maybe as we come into God's presence in our daily devotionals or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Rich things. Anybody else? Yeah, Brian. I just think about all those headings that you talked about last week or before about, you know, is it praise, is it Thanksgiving? And um, it's interesting how they all converge here. And uh, I mean, you highlighted the word almost. I think he's really struck by how close he got to, yeah. to maybe uh, that point, and, and it's so much grace there. And then, the, um, you know, he ends with praise and thanksgiving. Yeah. But 28 says it's good to hold fast, and, but to do that, you have to put trust in God because if you rely on yourself, and you don't have to trust, you better darn well be holding on fast. <laughs> but also with God, you just pull that with the promise. Yeah. And then you don't have to do more. We sometimes think as Christians we're supposed to do way more. It gets to be pretty simple sometimes. Mm. And just take it down to the simplest form. Just hold on. And wait for God to do the next step. You don't have to guess ahead of him. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. There's another aspect of reading this, the Psalms as sort of the hymnal of the church. It, uh, it's, it's good to, to read a psalm and find something that speaks to you. However, they're, they're to be said corporately, which means this one may not actually be about you or your experience. And for that reason, you don't discard it. You read it so that you understand what others corporately have experienced. And you, like when you read David's uh, psalm, of uh, contrition in Psalm 51, you don't wipe your forehead and say, Oof, at least that's not me. That's, <laughs> the point is to, to begin to know what David felt. And so even if you haven't been close to abandoning your faith, you look at this fellow and he's confessing to you openly how close he got. And you just, it's a, it's a way of sort of broadening your own experience rather than trying to find the verse that's your life verse or something. Uh, just forget about all that and uh, enter corporately into this reading. Building on that, I'm thinking of uh, one of my favorite verses as a church musician, which is Ephesians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as with all wisdom you teach and admonish one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there's, that's exactly what Father Paul is talking about. 
when we go to church, it's not just about us and God, but uh, other people are watching us. Are, are we really entering into worship in a meaningful way? Uh, does it look like these people really believe what they're saying? They may need that encouragement as they go through their difficult times. Excellent stuff, folks. Anything else? Yeah, Jack. Uh, slippage is never a good thing, and he refers to you twice in the song, and also he refers twice to being in hell. If you're, if you're going down concrete steps in the winter that's iced over, you need a railing to hold on to or someone to hold on to you. Yes. You know, if your transmission, your car slips, it won't stay in third gear, whatever, you got to take it in and get a new transmission or whatever. So slippage is never a good thing. Never a good thing. Thank you, everybody. That's wonderful. One of the things that comes to mind in general about this, uh, what the psalmist is doing through a lot of this psalm, and what many times we read in the psalms and elsewhere in scripture, is what we today would call belly aching, griping. Uh, and it makes me think of the connection between a lifestyle where we gripe, and a lifestyle when we do what God tells us to do over and over and over again, which is to be thankful, to be thankful. What does God want from us? Not our sacrifices. He wants a thankful heart. Uh, Psalm 50. Anyway, Martin Renkart lived in the dates that you see there. He was the bishop in a German city called Eilenberg was a walled city. And this was during a period of time in Germany that we call the 30 Years War. And his city is being uh, sieged, is the word I'm looking for, is being sieged by the enemy. Uh, it's been sieged for a long time. Famine, disease is taking over in the city as always happens when a city is under siege in those times. Uh, overcrowding, uh, people have been running to the city for refuge from all over the place to get away from the armies. By 1637, Rinkart is the only clergyman left in the city of Eilenburg. He's doing t uh, 40 to 50 funerals every day, one of which was for his own wife. Eilenberg has been sacked, as you see, three times by the invaders. They're demanding large tribute. Now, put yourself in his position. Are you going to bellyache? This goes beyond bellyaching. This is, we're talking Ukraine now, situations here. It's uh, unbelievably horrible. What does he do? He sits down with a pen and paper, and this is what he writes. Now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices who wondrous things hath done in whom this world rejoices, who from our mother's arms hath blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. Oh, may this bounteous God through all our lives be near us with ever joyful, ever joyful 
ever joyful hearts and blessed peace. You see the connection there? Where do you get your peace? By trusting in God and being joyful and saying thank you. And keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed. Psalm 73 is a psalm of perplexity. And free us from all ills in this world and the next. Well, that's pretty remarkable. I think if I was this pastor, that's not what I would be doing. And I don't know, apart from a huge infusion of the grace of God, that I would be able to sit down and write a poem like that. But I presume you recognize this text, and we sing it over and over again in our churches, and we have ever since he wrote it. It's one of those uh, hymns where it has just survived century after century in almost everybody's hymnal. Okay, that's, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but this is an important lesson in, in my life. Uh, learning to say thank you when really awful things have just happened. I can understand praying, God, get me out of this. I can understand saying, God, will you please save my friend, save my spouse, whatever. Uh, you pick the problem, my wayward child, whatever it might be. But to say, thank you, God, for this situation. I don't think I'm ever going to get there. With God's help, I hope to get close one day. But this is what we're called to. St. Paul tells us to be thankful in all things. The Psalms are filled with it. This is the high calling for us all. And it keeps us from going down that slippery slope. Because slippery is never a good thing, as Jack has reminded us. <laughs> I think it's one of the toughest lessons in all of Scripture. God has put us in this world, and because of the nature of the fall and because of the predicaments of uh, the flesh, sin, and the devil, things get really gritty sometimes. And for us to be thankful in all things, first of all, means that we understand, or at least are willing to acknowledge, that God is sovereign over all things. But knowing that and living my life that way are two very different things. I encourage myself as I encourage us all to think about the ramifications of being thankful, being able to say, God, I know you have me by the hand, and therefore even, this, even though this stinks, I'm thankful. Thank you. And one day I'll understand. But I don't now. <laughs> Jean Brevard has very kindly given me three wonderful resources here that all have to do with Psalters. And I've taken the liberty, Jean, to copy a few of the pages here so I can share it. They're here if you want to look through them. Is that all right, Jean? Yeah. Looks good. All right. Uh, here is the very first Psalter that John Calvin put together for his churches in the city of Strasbourg, Germany, or well, Switzerland, or actually, well, it's, sometimes it's France and sometimes it's Germany. It keeps moving back and forth. Anyway, uh, 
some Ron, I thought all, I don't even know how to pronounce that. It's, it's A-U-C-L-U, but it simply means some. And I don't know why it's in such big letters, but it's some rhyme psalms and hymns to be sung. 1539. When did Martin Luther tack his 95 theses on the Wittenberg Castle Church door? What was the year? 1517. 1517. This is just 22 years later. And already uh, they're working their way into creating and publishing Psalters. Remember I said the French were, had this, I think, uh, providentially uh, had this tradition of turning Psalms into metered poetry. And so when uh, Calvin wanted to do this, he got, uh, it's an incomplete Psalter um, published in Strasbourg. As you see, there's only 18 Psalms there. Twelve were written by Clement Moreau, who was the court poet to the king of France. And he was the one doing a lot of these translations already. He got convinced about the uh, reformed movement and uh, left the Catholic Church, got in a lot of trouble. So 12 of the 18 are Clement Moreau's work, but six are by John Calvin himself. Now, this was the very first Psalter, and there were many Psalters to come as they tried to complete all 150 Psalms. Other poets said, I think I can do a better job, and they would try, and so there'd be different publications going on along the way. But this is what it looked like. I don't speak French, so I, I, it's hopeless for me to even consider it, but those of you who read music can see that uh, this is so early, it's not even modern notation that has come into the scene just yet. So there you go, the uh, late, early, or early, middle uh, 1500s is when Psalters started to be created in metrical format for uh, Calvin's flocks. Now we, we talked last week, we, uh, we did some music, well, some church history, and, and tried to chart this influence of Calvin. You'll recall last week, I won't go through it all again, but if you, you study your history, there's King Henry, and then there's Edward VI, I believe, and then uh, Bloody Mary, and then Elizabeth, and England is going back and forth between the Protestant and Catholic. And while Mary was on the throne, the uh, leaders of the church had to get out of town because Mary was going to burn them. So they fled not to Luther. They fled to Calvin, which I think is interesting. They, they went to Geneva, where Calvin was at that point, and that's where they stayed until Mary, who wasn't on the throne that long, passed away. Elizabeth comes and Protestantism returns, and so all these leaders go back to England, and they are influenced by uh, the uh, Calvinist Reformation in terms of singing. Whereas Luther is singing a lot of man-made hymns, Calvin's groups are just singing the psalms through these metrical psalms that we talked about. Was that at the time the Catholic Church was pursuing Luther, they wanted to do him in, or was that not quite yet? That's, that's all in this same period of time, roughly. So 
Yeah. 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 Well, Luther at this point is, it's a lot of politics. Luther is in Wittenberg University teaching. Um, by the way, he gets letters from King Henry to communicate with uh, Luther, and Luther refuses to answer the letters to, the, to the King Henry. But anyway, the thing is, uh, there are provinces in Germany that are led by, sometimes they're called electors, sometimes they're called princes, and some of them were Catholic and some of them were Protestant. So if you were in a province like Wittenberg, where uh, there was a Protestant ruler in charge of that part of Germany, then you were safe. Um, that's basically it. So uh, they could have gone to Luther. Although, I, again, I don't know my history well enough to know whether at this time that's exact. Maybe, maybe that's why they went. Maybe it wasn't safe with Luther at that point. It's a good point. Well, of course, eventually, uh, this, this is what they're doing in England. This is the beginnings of our Anglican church. What did Ag Anglicans sing in the beginning of the uh, English Reformation? They sang metrical psalms. But they needed them in English. So what are you going to do? Well, same thing. Poets come along who study... Uh, Poets are really good at the poetry. Theologians are really good at studying scripture and getting a really accurate translation of the Hebrew into English. Getting somebody who really understands theology and is a good poet all in one person doesn't happen. It really doesn't happen at all. And so the, the poetry is often very fractured. In these and other times the theology isn't as good as some of the people want it and this is what happens when the pilgrims and Puritans come to America when do they land in Plymouth 16 Plymouth Rock 16 20, 20. Um, oh I'm getting a little ahead of myself uh, this is the English Psalter one of the uh, more popular ones. So we're still in England. But I wanted to read this to you. The whole book of Psalms collected into English meter by Thomas Sternhold, John Hopkins, and others conferred with the Hebrew with apt notes to sing them withal. The Sternhold and Hopkins Psalter was one of the most successful Psalters, and it was used in the English-speaking world for centuries. Uh, set forth and allowed to be sung in all churches of all the people together before and after morning and evening prayer. Not during, but before and after. And also before and after sermons. And moreover, uh, in private houses for their godly solace and comfort, laying apart all ungodly songs and ballads, which, which tend only to the nourishing of vice and corrupting of youth. <laughs> 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 so 
use. And then he quotes two passages of scripture. One is from James, if any be afflicted, let him pray. If any be merry, let him sing psalms. And then Colossians 3.16, which I just quoted a little bit earlier. Published in London, printed by the company of stationers, and then this is important, with the privilege of the royal king. What year? 1631. So the king of England gives his stamp of approval on this collection of psalms to be used. So this is Anglican, this is an Anglican Psalter. Yeah. Here's an interesting point, uh, because I, I've been wondering about this. You're talking about metrical psalms, uh, one word per, or one syllable per note, and that uh, method being uh, developed by John Calvin and imported back into England. Uh, and then, and then when I'm hearing the introduction to the whole book of Psalms, it says before and after mm -hmm. morning prayer, which this is what's helping us to make more sense. For instance, we're reading the Psalter from the book of Common Prayer. That particular translation with the rains and all that is pre-King James. This is the Coverdale mm -hmm. version. And the reason that, the, that when subsequent editions of the prayer book came out, uh, that they never updated the Psalter was that so much music had been written to those particular words, and it's like taking the, the tune Hey Jude and putting different <laughs> words. You can't just do that and have everybody say, oh, I like this too. No, they say, I want to do the, the, the old one. So the fact is there was a, a, a musical way to sing the Coverdale and other editions of the Psalms that was not metrical, but then there was also a metrical that was imported back in. So I think it might have been in the Anglican world in the 16th, 17th century, sort of a, a mixture had begun. You mean the chanting of psalms? The chanting of psalms. The, the Not in the beginning, seven. as I understand it, Father Paul. That so comes later on. The chanting of psalms? Yeah, that uh, was uh, thrown out as too popish. But in the, okay. So what, I, what you're saying... Uh, that in the period of Elizabeth I, that they had gotten rid of the chanting of the Psalms and brought in metrical. I'm not, I'm not really trying to argue with him. Yeah, yeah I, I, again, I, I'm not enough of a historian to have exact dates in mind. And, okay, yeah. that's fine. But I do, I do know that it was a long time until, I mean, the Church of England got rid of the pipe organs, got rid of the choirs, and... Um, I think got rid of all the chanting, too. They sang psalters congregationally because there were no choirs. So it really swung quite a bit. I'm sorry? Did it really swing quite a bit back and forth? You said they got rid of everything. It sounds like what we like. The choir, the... the story of, uh, of, of music and of worship in general in England is absolutely dizzying. <laughs> There's no other word for it. Uh, starting with uh, Henry and the Reformation in the 1530s, 30s, yeah. All the way up, I mean, it's still not straight. And when, when the pilgrims leave in the, in the 1600s, and uh, uh, slowly, slowly the organs come back. By slowly, I mean over many decades. Many decades. Choirs come back, and then in the royal chapel, uh, chapel royal, as they would say, 
uh, you start to have choirs and they start to pull out some of those old playing chants and, and when we get into Anglican chant, we'll talk about that. Uh, and then they slowly start to, uh, to sing those with choirs. But it's still the people singing, it's just songs until uh, Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley come along and now you're in the 1700s. And still many in England are digging their heels and saying no, just songs. And in America, that all carries over. It's important to remember when Elizabeth came to the throne in 1550-something, you know, her mother, Anne Boleyn, was, what, executed by Elizabeth's father, right? Anne Boleyn died. So Elizabeth, for years, as a teenager and even younger than that, she, she walked a very fine line. So she saw Edward VI go very Protestant, then he dies of some disease, and and Mary is very Catholic, so Elizabeth is walking this very tight line. And so when she came and was herself on the throne, you know, she knew she had this controversy, controversy as the Brits say, in England of the Catholic faction and the Reform faction, going back and forth. And she famously said, I cannot open somebody's head and look inside their brain. I'm going to let them pretty much do what they want, although it's thought that she was pretty high church herself yeah. in her own private devotions. Yeah. But she charted this very careful political struggle line between the two factions, all her career. But then she also had some, she burned a few ministers herself. Uh -huh. Blood Mary gets the, notate, the notoriety, but Elizabeth did some of that herself. Yeah, it wasn't over. No. And, and then being a Catholic became uh, something he could easily die for. Yeah, he had priest holes in, in mansions to hide the priest. Yeah. The, yeah. Okay. It's a fascinating period. Now, uh, now, coming to America in 1620, I find it fascinating that uh, when uh, the dissenters come to America in 1640, now remember, they moved into a wilderness, right? They land, and what do they see? Beach and forest. And half of them die the first year between food and exposure. But within 20 years, they've hauled over a printing press into the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and they publish the first book available in English-speaking America. And it's called the Bay Psalm Book. Let's read what this says. And, and well, why do they do it? They think that, that there were two Psalters that were really big at that time, Sternhold and Hopkins and another one called Ainsworth. They took Ainsworth with them across over the boat. And they thought it was not close enough to the Bible. These Puritans, you know, these were theologically heavy-duty men. And they wanted more accuracy, more accuracy. They didn't care about the music, more accuracy. So they write the whole book of Psalms faithfully, faithfully translated into English meter. Whereunto is prefixed a discourse declaring not only the lawfulness, but also the necessity of the heavenly ordinance of singing scripture psalms in the churches of God. 
And then the same two verses of scripture that are there. And here we have some pages. What is interesting with that for a hymnal? There's no music. music. The early Psalters did not have music with it. There were a few tunes that they would know. Some of them were common meter. Some were long meter. Some were short meter. And sometimes in later editions, they would publish those tunes in the back. Uh, Sometimes not. And they just knew, uh, well, for instance, let's look at this. It's uh, Psalm 23. The Lord to me a shepherd is. Eight. What therefore shall I not? One, two, three, four, five, six. All right. 8686 is common meter. They're sticking with those common meters. But look at the look at the poetry. Want therefore shall I not. Who talks like that? <laughs> so th- this is the issue, and this is why they keep publishing Psalters. Let's get better poetry. Let's get better theology. Let's get better music. And then all combinations of these things. And so they keep trying. They keep trying. And to this day, in in my mind, in many minds, there is yet to be a Psalter that has really superb poetry, good tunes, and really, really close to the Bible. It's an interesting thing with these folks. Only the Bible is worthy to be used in God's presence in corporate worship. But are these the Bible? No, they're paraphrases of the Bible. how that flies in America in, in, in Protestant churches to do something like chanting yeah And they can sing it to the words, even if the words slaughter the English syntax. Yeah, you still got the words. They understand and they've been doing it ever since they were kids. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Isaac Watts uh, uh, did uh, sing out of the Sternhold and Hopkins, which we were, you know, I mean, I'm not going to go into hymnology. Both of us have taught this <laughs> for years and years. 
But Isaac once said to his father, I'm so sick of this salt. <laughs> he said, he called it doggerel doubly distilled. <laughs> and his father said, well, why don't you write something? So he did. He did indeed. And started a revolution that changed the yeah, English-speaking world. His first hymns were based on the songs. Yeah. It's just they were one step removed yep. in poetry. They were the idea, not the words. Okay, well, there we go. It's a little bit after eight. Uh, any final thoughts or questions before we close? Thank you. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Both. In the Anglican tradition, you really find both.